one thing opened up here. Well, we didn't meet last week, so how's everybody coming on the reading? You know, reading James, five chapters every day. Shouldn't take you more than about 15 minutes to read through those five chapters. And uh, read it, you ought to be reading it through. I haven't mentioned this, but if you've been reading through the material in the, in the textbook, uh, you should have picked up on the fact that, as well as in the, uh, the, the assignments in the workbook, the, uh, that value of perhaps reading in different versions, because we do get pretty familiar with reading the same thing, the same translation over and over again. It, uh, eventually it can become like white noise, and that means we just uh, uh, don't really pay attention like, like we should. Okay, let's see where we are here in our... Okay, go back to this particular slide here, I think. No, that's too much. What slide do I want to use? Maybe it's back at this one. Okay, we'll start there. Everything ready, Eddie? Okay. All right, let me uh, open in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to continue to study and learn about how to read uh, your word and how to come to understand it and to improve our own ability to think, reflect, to probe, to meditate upon your word. Father, as we go through these principles this evening, we pray that you'd help us to uh, work through them and to see how they apply in terms of our own uh, our own study and our own reading of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you can probably tell, I'm fighting with the mother of all coals, so we'll see how we get through. I've, it's amazing. This morning I didn't cough in class, and that's the only time I've gone more than five minutes without coughing in three days. So who knows? All right, how, how is everybody doing on the reading, keeping up, reading over and over again? In the, um, in the textbook, I think for this time, I don't have the, um, what, what were we supposed to read through for today? Seven and eight. Okay, and next time, nine, Ten and eleven. Some of this is is familiar. It's pretty easy reading, not that hard. And we get into about the what chapter am I trying for here? We get to the fifteenth chapter. We'll be going over some of the things I'm starting to hit tonight in terms of just making uh, more detailed observations of the passage. I want to review this chart, look at one other, and then get into um, just talking about analyzing and observing some of the details uh, in the text. 
One of the areas in which we observe is in culture and context. Culture and context involves a couple of different things. Culture involves understanding understanding the culture of the people to whom the Scripture is written. When we get to interpretation, we'll study the principle that, a, that the Bible needs to be interpreted in light of the time in which it was written. So we have to understand how things would be understood at that time. And there's different tools that can be used to do that. I don't think I have uh, any of those up here on the table, but there are different books that are out related to uh, understanding the uh, manners and customs of the Bible. And some are better than others. We have some back in the library, and you can take a look at those. And uh, the, the better books are the ones of that nature, are the ones that are organized according to the books of the Bible so that you can look up. If you're reading something in Matthew or you're reading something in, in um, one of the epistles, you can just go to Ephesians or Deuteronomy or Matthew or wherever, and you should be able to find uh, background information like that. Um, in these books. And often something like that is really helpful, especially in historical books. So it's important to understand the culture. That's, as I've said before, that's one context because Paul is writing to the Corinthians. They have a cultural context of background. They have, uh, they've come out of uh, paganism. They've come out of idolatry. They've come out of, in many cases, uh, you know, the, the um, um, pagan fertility religions. Later on in the book, you may have some background related to the um, the mystery religions. You certainly have that as a background in Ephesus. And, of course, we studied in Acts chapter 19 about the riot that occurred and, and when Paul was in Ephesus from caused by the silversmiths and uh, the fact that they were losing business, uh, which shows something about the economic impact of the gospel in the area. But you read the background of uh, Artemis of the Ephesians and read in mythology and things like that, and you realize she's a little bit different from uh, Diana, the, uh, uh, the the huntress, who's the goddess of the hunt, and several other things within um, Greco-Roman mythology, because when uh, her worship moves across the Aegean over into the area of Anatolia, what we call modern Turkey, it sort of blends in with the fertility mystery cult of Sibylle and so takes on a whole new dimension. In fact, how she's represented is uh, very different from how she's represented in Greece and in Rome. And so it's important to look at those kinds of uh, nuances. So you have the culture of the people that uh, Paul is uh, writing to or that Moses is writing to or Daniel, uh, any of those, that's important. And then you have the literary context, which is what most people think of when we think about context. And when we do that, we need to address the the theme of the book. And those of you who uh, listen to me know that this is one of the things I try to do when I study a book now uh, for the past 10 or 12 years at the beginning. So if it's a long book, several times in the course of the book, I try to do sort of a bird's eye view or flyover of the um, uh, of the book so that we don't lose the forest for the trees, constantly trying to relate the details of the text to the overall uh, structure and argument of the book. This is why I'm having you read through James over and over again, because you're going to see things you haven't seen before. You're going to uh, correlate some things that you haven't uh, correlated before, and that's very helpful. Also, coming to understand the argument of the book, 
And how can you find out that? I pointed out looking in Bible encyclopedias, uh, handbooks, things of that nature to look that up. That will also give you uh, information about the structure of the book, the kind of book, the background issues related to its occasion, purpose, and then the immediate context of a passage. Um, answering your, all your basic questions about who, what, when, where, why, how much. Then we're going to get into some word studies a little bit tonight, talking about terms. And this is uh, important in terms of understanding the words that are used in a particular passage. And so this, too, is part of observation. One of the most important tools that you can use in Bible study is a dictionary, not just a Greek dictionary or one that relates it to a Greek dictionary, and that's um, the expositor's or Vine's Expository Dictionary of the New Testament. This is the version we have in the library. It's had various um, developments. It was originally published, I think, in the late 19th century, and since then there have been others who added an Old Testament version to it so that what you do is you can just look at it, and if you're looking up any particular word, you look it up in the English, and then it gives you a list of the of the English, I mean, of the Greek words that are that are used and translated that way. For example, if you look up the word holiness, holy, or holily in uh, in vines, then it lists the first word is hagiosmos, gives you the English transliteration of the Greek, gives you some basic uh, uh, definitions or ways in which the word's translated. And then the second word is hagiosune, Third word is hagiotes, fourth word is hosiotes, and so you can uh, look those words up that way. Uh, then under adjectives, it lists the adjectives that are used that are translated holy, and then the adverb, and then the verb, so it gives you a, a complete breakdown uh, that way. And that's important to just begin to understand the meaning of those terms, but um, that gives you the Greek words and in a, if you had access to a Greek dictionary or Greek, so there are some uh, Greek dictionaries that have been published. I think Thayer's was published that was keyed to the Strong's numbers. So if you have a uh, use a Strong's concordance, it tells you if you look up uh, the word holy, it it, trans, it has a number that's assigned to that word in the in the back. Well, you can also look that up in a in some Greek dictionaries. Of course, if you're using one of the many uh, computer-based programs, uh, they are keyed to Strong's numbers, and those Strong's numbers are then correlated to other uh, dictionaries. But just using an English dictionary is often very, uh, very important for understanding those words. And as you read through a book over and over again, you, you begin to get a sense of the author's style, uh, answering question like, are these words unique to this author? Does the author use them with a special sense? Uh, how many times does the word occur and in what context? And how does the word affect the meaning of the passage? Now tonight I'm going to introduce a third circle up here. This is what one we'll go into a little bit, and that's understanding syntax. Uh, terms are is a the the concept of a term is a little bit different than a word, as we'll see in a minute. Was I uh, discuss that? But the organization of the terms together as a in phrases and clauses and sentences and then paragraphs is what is known as syntax. 
syntax is, is more than just grammar. Grammar identifies the parts of speech, noun, verb, uh, object, direct object, indirect object, uh, but syntax starts focusing on how those words are grammatically related within the, within the sentence. And so it's important to identify connective words, um, and, but, however, therefore, when we look at a, uh, a sentence ex- expresses the basic unit of thought and the basic uh, structure of, uh, of several sentences together around one main idea is a paragraph. And so when, when you study through Scripture and you begin to uh, drill down in terms of some level of analysis, identify the paragraph structure. Now, some Bibles are more helpful with this than other Bibles. Some Bibles will, uh, if they're versified, and by versified I mean they, they break out each verse as an independent line. Um, one of the problems you have in translation is that often English translations break Greek sentences down into more manageable English sentences. One of the characteristics of the King James translation was they tried to make each verse an independent sentence. That didn't always work, but they tried to to do that. Uh, when you look at um, uh, at a passage, therefore, a paragraph, sometimes, uh, like with the New American Standard, I believe they will boldface the verse number at each paragraph. Sometimes that takes a little... Um, a little closer observation just to figure out what the um, if that's really a bold face or you, your eyes are playing tricks on you. Uh, others will put a paragraph mark in there, and so that's helpful. Other translations like the um, uh, Nelson, Thomas Nelson Study Bible, actually paragraphs all the verses. That makes it hard to find the verse numbers, but that helps you see what the paragraphs are. And the paragraphs actually are somewhat subjective. When I'm working with pastors in this area, I'm working more with an original language text, and even if they don't know Greek, they can look at it and see where, where, um, how it's par- paragraphed. And that's going to be a little better because uh, the editors of the Greek text understand the grammar better, and so there's usually very little variance between some of the different Greek editions, um, but there will be a lot more variance in different English translations from uh, from the Greek text. So it's important to identify how many sentences. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Um, identifying the main clauses. The way to go about, and we're going to do exercises on this. You'll probably get cra- go crazy with the exercises I've got. Uh, we're going to have a lot of a lot more participation t- tonight, so you're going to need to speak up, and Eddie will need to turn the capture volume up, I guess. Um, what are the main clauses? The way to, to do that, just go through the text and identify what the clauses are and and what the uh, phrases are, and then pick out the main, uh, the, the independent clause. Then looking at the key verbs and what do they express about the act, action or the thought progression in the passage, how do the prepositions affect the meaning of the passage? All of this is, is important for just thinking through, uh, thinking through a particular passage. Now, having said that, let's talk about uh, observation in relationship to the terms 
in the passage. We'll get out of that, and I'm going to go over here, and we're going to pull up our James passage. I'm going to make this just a little bit larger for everybody, and I'm going to try to do this in just with one window. Okay, can you all see that pretty well? Okay, or don't need to make it, I'll make it a little bit larger for now anyway. Okay, the verse that we've been looking at for a key verse is James 1, 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, I've had you make a lot of different observations about this passage, and one of the things that we should be focusing on in observation has to do with the... uh, the basic elements that we see within a passage. And then there are four basic elements in a biblical passage. Now, I started writing out these notes this afternoon, so I didn't have time to get them to Connie to upload or to make, uh, make copies here. Uh, and I will do that so that you have, uh, so that you can download it off the website, uh, this week. There are four basic elements in any biblical passage. The first are terms. We have to look at the words that are used. The words are the basic, basic components of, of the passage. Second thing we look at is the relations and interrelations between the terms are what we call structure. Okay? What are the relations and interrelations between the terms? What's the structure of the passage? Now, I've given you a handout called The Cruciality of Structure. I think everybody should have it. Everybody have it? And so a lot of what I'm saying is basically summarized in in this. I'm not going to read this through, but it's going to give you, after I say what I say, this will help you kind of summarize uh, what I've said about structure. And we look at the, first of all, terms. What I have on the other chart was doing word studies. Second, the relations and interrelations between the terms, or what we call the structure of the passage. Then, um, third, the general literary form or forms of the passage. And the fourth may seem a little subjective, but the atmosphere of the passage. Is it an atmosphere of encouragement? Is it an atmosphere of rebuke, confrontation, like much of uh, 1 Corinthians is because Paul's really uh, upset with them, or parts of uh, Galatians where he's rebuking them? What's sort of the atmosphere uh, of the passage? So I want to start off tonight just looking at um, observing terms. Observing terms. Now somebody said earlier that they were having a little trouble just understanding the concept of a term. Uh, the, the way a ter- the way the term here is used in a specific sense when we talk about it in in Bible study, um, it's sometimes it may be synonymous with word, but not with with the term word. But it's not a term is a word as it is used in a specific context. So it's a word as it is used in a specific context. So it's not just talking about the word itself. For example, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. 
Uh, okay. Now let's just read through this a uh, little bit. But as it is written, and then there's a quote from the Old Testament, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Okay, what's it, what, is, what would you say is one of the key words, key terms that we're looking at? Key, 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 at this point, just key words. What's one of the key words that we see here? Spirit. It's just the word spirit. Now, as you can see, there are some verses where the word spirit is translated uppercase, which would indicate the Holy Spirit, and other uses where it's a lowercase. In the Greek, it's the same word all the way through. It's the Greek word pneuma. Now, if I were to look up look this up in a dictionary, okay, we're going to look up the, the root word pneuma, and we're going to... Uh, let me go to the lemma here. And we're going to look it up in a dictionary. Where did it open? I know that opened somewhere. Ah. Opened on another window on my other computer. There we go. I'll put it over here. There we go. Okay. Now, here's the meaning of the word pneuma. Dictionaries, you may not know this, dictionaries list meanings for words from the most common usage to the least common usage. All dictionaries follow that pattern. So the most common usage for the word pneuma is air in movement, blowing, breathing. Uh, for example, it's used for wind, uh, second for breathing out air uh, in terms of breath. So that's the first category of usage. The second is that which animates or gives life to the body. So it's a life-giving spirit. Uh, so in that sense, in terms of how we understand it, that would the, the word pneuma just refers to, to life generally. Then there are various subcategories, and see what happens in a dictionary is it lists various places where the word is used with that kind of meaning. Uh, then the third meaning that's listed is part of the human personality in terms of spirit. And then it'll talk about different ways in which it's used. It's used um, uh, in contrast to sarks, which is the flesh. It's used as the source of insight, feeling, and will. Um, and you can just go on. You can see a, a spiritual state or a state of mind or a disposition. So in that sense, it means an attitude, a way of thinking. Um, it can be used to refer to, an, for example, an angel, an independent, non-corporeal being, uh, in, that, in contrast to a being that can be perceived by the physical senses. So in that case, it would be referring to evil spirits. Uh, God's being as a controlling influence. Uh, this would be uppercase spirit, the Holy Spirit. 
And so it goes on and on and gives lots and lots of breakdowns of Spirit of God used here. And we see a variety of different usage, uh, an activating spirit that is not from God, an independent, transcendent person. Some of these sort of overlap in how they uh, categorize them. Anyway, I just wanted you to see that, that, that there, are lot, there are listed in uh, Bauer, Art, and Gingrich uh, eight different broad categories, and then each one of those has numerous subcategories or, or, or nuances to the meaning. So you look at a, at a verse, let's say if you were studying verse 10, you would want to identify uh, terms. Now, the word is pneuma or spirit, but the definition of a term is a word as it is used in a given context. So the word pneuma is used as, um, for example, in verse 11, it's used here in reference to a man and it's used here in reference to God. So you have the word the word pneuma used twice, but it's two different terms because the definition of what makes a term a special thing is that it um, it's how it's used in a particular context. Uh, for example, uh, I think I used this earlier. The English word trunk has various various uh, meanings. It can refer to a box or a chest. It can refer to the uh, nose of an elephant. It can refer to uh, the main the, the stem of a tree, or it can refer to the uh, the main uh, body of something, like a trunk line. Uh, it can refer to something in the back of the car, unless, of course, you have a Volkswagen bug, and then it's in the front of the car. So uh, the trunk is, uh, uh, and you could use the word uh, different ways. You could say, I'm going to put the trunk in the trunk. And so there you have trunk used two different ways, with two different meanings. So you have two different terms, but it's the same word. Now, because you are a native English speaker and you've learned these nuances, if someone told you to go put the trunk in the trunk, you would know exactly what that meant. But if English was not your first language, you might be somewhat confused uh, by the use of those terms. And so uh, it's important to, to slow down and take a look at these things and look, look things up in a dictionary. So uh, you have uh, context, not other contexts in Scripture, not unlike this one in 1 Corinthians 2, where it's important to identify the meaning of the term uh, in each one of its uses, and the, the the word is pneuma, but you want to identify the fact that it's really used in this context about four different ways. It's used to refer to the Holy Spirit, uh, in for example, in verse 10, as well as verse 11, and in verse 12, the Spirit of God. Every time it's used in relation to the Spirit of God, uh, it's it's clear this is referring to the Holy Spirit. Then you have a reference here to the spirit of man, and we have to understand what that uh, describes in contrast to the spirit of God. Uh, sometimes we talk about the human spirit as an element of man's uh, uh, person that is lost, that was lost by Adam in spiritual death and is uh, regained at, at regeneration or rebirth. 
Uh, and But the word spirit of man doesn't always refer to the human spirit. Sometimes it refers to other things, and it can, re- as it does here, it just refers to the broad uh, sense of the immaterial nature of man. And that is in contrast, and we have the use here, not the spirit of the world. And so here it's talking about something else. It's talking about a disposition or a mindset that is related to the world system. And so it's important to go through and identify the different meanings and to see how they, they might shift even within, uh, within the same context. Now, when we look at terms, there are two different kinds of terms to, to identify. There's ordinary terms and special terms. Uh, for example, if we're looking, uh, let me go back to our passage in James. If we're looking here, we may, I'm going to switch this because I don't like the way the New King James translated that opening. It should be uh, know this, not so then. So we'll work off the King James here a little bit. This you know, or know this, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. What would be, uh, when we look at at a verse, there are some terms that are just rather ordinary and may be of significance, but they may not be of significance. Um, for example, in verse 20, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The definite articles there, the, or if we have an indefinite article in some places, a or an, uh, that may be just an ordinary use of the word, and it may not indicate anything special or anything significant. Other times, the word might, even an article, may have significance. For example, in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Many of you are familiar with the fact that in the Greek, uh, there's not an article with uh, God, with the word God, and this has caused the Jehovah's Witnesses to want to translate that as a God. The word was a God as if there were, um, uh, he was a derivative deity. And so um, those that, that, at that time, an article becomes uh, important and, uh, and significant. But we also have words that are used of a little more special sense, and they are technical terms that are used within a passage, and so technical terms need to be uh, defined and investigated. If we look at verses 19 and 20 together, because that's one sentence, do you see anything there that would be a crucial or a technical term? Hmm? No. Brethren, righteousness or righteousness of God? Righteousness of God. I, I would say righteousness of God is a technical term because you're talking about something related to the essence of God. It's more significant. Okay, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm breaking these down into uh, significant technical terms. Righteousness of God would be more technical. Significant terms would be terms that are important, like brethren, uh, that would be important. And and uh, and significant, but they're not necessarily a technical term. Redemption, propitiation, regeneration; these are technical terms. Okay, they're of a of a greater uh, significance. 
Then you have other terms, that, for example, righteous, uh, I mean, for example, uh, um, my beloved brethren, that would be, that's significant for understanding aspects of the passage we talked about last time. This shows that James is talking about uh, fellow, uh, fellow believers. And then there are other terms which are important and must be investigated within the context of the, of the passage. And so to do this, you would want to know uh, words like, uh, like no. Um, this would give you a, in English we have the word no, but in Greek there are two different words. One is a gnosko, which often emphasizes the process of coming to acquire knowledge, and oida, which has to do with something that it, that is already presupposed or are understood. Um, then you have terms like uh, in, in this in James, it may be important to understand the use of the word hear, uh, speaking, and anger. That these would be uh, important terms for for James. Uh, he repeats anger twice, so that's important. Um, and you also have important structural terms. For, uh, for example, the word for here at the beginning uh, is explaining something in relation to the, the, the first sentence in verse 19. So uh, it's, it's a way of sort of prioritizing uh, the words that are, that are in the passage. Another thing that's important to understand is uh, not only that there are the technical terms or crucial terms, uh, important terms, and then significant, or what I'll call, I'll break them this way, crucial or technical terms, significant terms, and then just other important terms. And then we also have literal and figurative terms. Literal and figurative terms. For example, let's look at Luke uh, 22.18, Jesus, let's see, okay, uh, let's black up and get the context. Okay, first, starting in verse uh, 15, uh, when he said to them, so who's speaking? Jesus, yeah, I want feedback here. Y'all talk up, I'm going to ask a lot of questions because I want you uh, interacting on this. Uh, Jesus is talking. Who's he talking to? Disciples. He's talking to his disciples. What's the circumstance? Passover. Which Passover? The last one. Okay, this is the Passover meal the night before he goes to the cross. What's he getting ready to do? That's the next day he's getting ready to go to the cross. What is he getting ready to say here? What, is he, what does he do in this context? He institutes the Lord's table. And so in the midst of this, he comes down and he says, uh, he takes a cup, gives thanks, and he says, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, I want to look at the word vine. That's an important term, fruit of the vine. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a technical term. It's not a um, it's not a term that is uh, what I would call uh, significant, but it is important uh, for uh, an understanding of the passage. And so we need to uh, address the question: Is he using it literally or figuratively here? When the word vine is used here, fruit of the vine, is he talking about a literal vine, or is he talking about 
uh, using this in some sort of metaphorical or symbolic way. Literal. Literal. It's talking about literal. But if we go to John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Is vine used literally or figuratively? Figuratively. Figuratively. So we need to look at the passage and define, is this literal or is this, is this figurative? Another way in which we need to identify terms is uh, in terms of their grammatical category. Is this a noun? Is it a verb? Is it an adjective or an adverb? If it's an adjective, it's modifying which noun. If it's an adverb, it's modifying what verb. Is it a preposition? Is it a conjunction? Uh, is it an interjection? Is it an article? What is its part of speech? What's the grammatical category? And then beyond that, we need to look at the inflection of the verb. And in this case, is, is, it a, uh, is this going to be a nominative is it used in the subject? Is it used as a, as a genitive, as possessive? Is it used as a object or direct object? Uh, how do we classify the noun? If it's a verb, what's the tense? What's the, is it, is it uh, active, middle, or passive voice? So those are the uh, nuances there. I want to give a little exercise before we take our little break. I want to go to uh, Mark 10. And I just want to read through, the, this, is, this is just using a di- different kind of passage, using a narrative passage. I'll read through Mark 10, 13 through 16, and I want you to uh, just kind of jot down some notes or ideas here. What are, what are the t- terms? We'll classify them in terms of uh, t- technical or crucial, significant, and important. Um, then they brought little children to him that he might touch them, But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God uh, as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, I was reading from the New King James, so you probably saw some differences since I have the New American Standard up on the screen. Um, They were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Are there any technical terms in that passage? Verse 13. Technical terms in verse 13. Disciples. Disciples. Um, Rebuked. Rebuke might be, you know, some of this is just a judgment call as to whether you're going to say that's a technical ter- term or whether it's a significant term. Um, but it's a term you want to you want to look at. Any other words there that you want to look at? Touch. Yeah, touch might be would be a significant term. Uh, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, "Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these." Technical term would be kingdom of God. Any any other significant terms there? Um, indignant. Yeah, what, what's indignant? Well, it certainly can't be a sin. <laughs> that's that's a good, that's a good, that's a now that's that's not an observation. Oh, it's a statement. It's an inference. That's right. You're right. It's an inference. Yep. 
Um, 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Technical terms, kingdom of God, what else? Truly enter. Enter is a important technical term. And, and really important because we tend to think of entry into the kingdom as getting into heaven. And what we're going to learn on Sunday mornings when we get into the Sermon on the Mount is that entering the kingdom of God is not getting into heaven. Entering the kingdom of God is a term that's going to be uh, roughly synonymous with inheriting the kingdom. And so it, 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 think of this analogy, that in the Old Testament, how many when, when Moses is talking to the conquest generation and he's giving his parting words to them in Deuteronomy, how many, member, how many people in that conquest generation are, are probably justified? They're, they're going to go to heaven. They're believers. You know, very few, none, or most. 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 Okay? Including Moses. Moses is a believer. Yeah, including Moses. Does Moses get to enter the land? No. He's still saved, but he doesn't get to enter the land. Entering the land... Uh, not entering the land was punishment for his disobedience, but it is not a loss of salvation. Uh, Inheriting the land was something that happened to those who entered the land and they received a possession in the land. So entering the land and inheriting the land were were synonymous terms. Not entering the land didn't mean he wasn't saved. It meant that he had, because of, of his disobedience, he was going to lose uh, that reward and that privilege of entering the land. Who got to enter the land from the from the Exodus generation? Caleb and Joshua. They got to enter the land because they were they were obedient. So that's the analogy. We're going to develop this more on Sunday morning. So entering the land um, is is roughly synonymous to inheriting. It's not just getting into heaven. So it has to do with rewards for spiritual growth as opposed to um, uh, the free gift of eternal life. Receive. Hmm? Receive. What does that mean, to receive? Uh, 16, took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Blessing. Blessing, and then laying his hands on them. You'd have to look that up to see what's the significance of lay, laying his hands on them. Anything in there that's used in a, a figurative sense? Child at 15, Lord is ours who came to God like a child. He has used as a simile there, a comparison there. How do you get the kingdom of God and figure it out? Kingdom of God. Some people think we're in it now. Some people think it's in heaven. You have to do a lot of reading and study. I mean, how do you find that out? How do you find that out? Well, if, if John the Baptist came along saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and there's nothing at the beginning of any of the Gospels that explains what the kingdom of God is, where do you go to, where would the people, what would the people then think of as the kingdom of God? The Messianic kingdom. That's what the Old Testament promises. A Davidic king on a throne in Jerusalem. Uh, it's, a, it's a Davidic king. It's a literal, physical, geophysical kingdom. And when John the Baptist says, uh, repent and, and Jesus and the disciples all say that the people know what they're talking about. They were expecting a Messiah who would come 
and defeat the Romans and establish a glorious physical kingdom. Jesus never corrects that. What he corrects is the order of events. They they expected the kingdom, and they were ignoring the suffering of the king. So he never corrects their uh, perception of a literal of a, of a literal kingdom, and um, and so you have to go back to the Old Testament. What was the mindset of, of of the Jews on the basis of the Old Testament? It was a physical, literal Davidic kingdom with a descendant of David sitting on the throne, and it never has a sense of a, of a spiritual kingdom. But that's it's a long study. King, the kingdom of God is is one of the most uh, challenging and complex because people have made it that way. Um, okay, let's take a break, and then we'll come back and, and work on some other exercises. So I went a little longer then, but we'll we'll take a quick five, six, seven minute break. Um. Yeah, I'll look one up here real quick. There's a, there's a book called The Illustrated Manners and Customs of the Bible. Yeah, it's right up here. Illustrated Manners and Customs of the Bible. And that seems to be organized topically. So you have uh, very, there's a table of contents here on the left. Uh, so you would look up different things in terms of their, their category and topic over here. Okay. And then you have, um, I can never, the, these titles are so close to one another, I cannot. Uh, This is the new, the new manners and customs of the Bible, and this is this is versified. That means that it's organized according to uh, biblical book, chapter, and verse. And this is there's the information on that one right there. New manners and customs by. James Freeman and Harold Chadwick. 